Chapter ninety six of the House by the Churchyard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. The House by the Churchyard by Joseph Sheraton Lefano. Chapter ninety six about the rightful mrs nutter of the mills and how mr mervyn received the news little dr toole came out feeling rather queer and stunned from stirk's house it was past three o'clock by this time and it had already in his eyes a changed and empty look as his upturned eye for a moment rested upon its grey front and the window-panes glittering in the reddening sun he looked down the street towards the turnpike and then up it towards martin's row and the mills and he bethought him suddenly of poor sally nutter and abraded himself smiting the point of his cane with a vehement stab upon the pavement for having forgotten to speak to low about her case perhaps however it was as well he had not inasmuch as there were a few not unimportant facts connected with that case about which he was himself in the dark mr gamble's conducting clerk had gone upstairs to mrs nutter's door and being admitted had very respectfully asked leave to open for that lady's instruction a little statement which he was charged to make this was in substance that archibald duncan mary matchwell's husband was in dublin and had sworn informations against her for bigamy and that a warrant having been issued for her arrest upon that charge the constables had arrived at the mills for the purpose of executing it and removing the body of the delinquent m m to the custody of the turnkey that measures would be taken on the spot to expel the persons who had followed in her train and that mr charles nutter himself would arrive in little more than an hour to congratulate his good wife sally on the termination of their troubles and to take quiet possession of his house you can imagine how sally nutter received all this with clasped hands and streaming eyes looking in the face of the man of notices and attested copies unable to speak unable quite to believe but before he came to the end of his dry and delightful narrative a loud yell and a scuffle in the parlour were heard a shrilly clamour of warring voices a dreadful clash of glass a few curses and oaths in basses and baritones and some laughter from the coachman who viewed the fray from outside through the window and a brief wild and garrulous uproar which made little sally nutter though by this time used to commotion draw back with her hands to her heart and hold her breath it was the critical convulsion the evil spirit was being eliminated and the tenement stunned bruised and tattered about to be at peace of charles nutter's doings and adventures during the terrible interval between his departure on the night of mary matchwell's first visit to the mills and his return on this evening to the same abode there is a brief outline in the first person partly in answer to questions 
and obviously intended to constitute a memorandum for his attorney's use i shall reprint it with your leave as it is not very long verbatim when that woman sir came out to the mills says this document i could scarce believe my eyes i knew her temper she was always damnably wicked but i had found out all about her long ago and i was amazed at her audacity what she said was true we were married or rather we went through the ceremony at st clement danes in london in the year fifty i could not gainsay that but i well knew what she thought was known but to herself and another she had a husband living then we lived together little more than three months we were not a year parted when i found out all about him and i never expected more trouble from her i knew all about him then but seventeen years bring many changes and i feared he might be dead he was a saddler in edinburgh and his name was duncan i made up my mind to go thither straight next morning the lovely betty packet was to sail for hollyhead i took money and set out without a word to anybody the wretch had told my poor wife and showed her the certificate and so left her half mad i swore to her twas false i told her to wait a bit and she would see that was everything passed between us i don't think she half understood what i said for she was at her wits ends i was scarce better myself first twas a good while before i resolved on this course and saw my way and worse thoughts were in my head but so soon as i made up my mind to this i grew cool i don't know how it happened that my footprints by the river puzzled them twas all accident i was thinking of no such matter i did not go through the village but through the knockmaroon gate twas dark by that time i only met two men with a cart they did not know me dublin men i think i crossed the park in a straight line for dublin i did not meet a living soul twas dark but not very dark when i reached the butcher's wood all on a sudden i heard a horrid screech and two blows quick one after the other to my right not three steps away heavy blows they sounded like the strokes of a man beating a carpet with the first alarm i hallooed and ran in the direction shouting as i went twas as i ran i heard the second blow i saw no one and heard no other sound the noise i made myself in running might prevent it i can't say how many seconds it took to run the distance not many i ran fast i was not long in finding the body his white vest and small clothes showed under the shadow he seemed quite dead i thought when first i took his hand there was a kind of quiver in his fingers but that was over immediately his eyes and mouth were a bit open the blood was coming very fast the wounds on his head looked very deep frightful as i conjectured they were done with a falchion a name given to a heavy wooden sword resembling a new zealand weapon 
there was blood coming from one ear and his mouth there was no sign of life about him and i thought him quite dead i would have lifted him against the tree but his head looked all in a smash and i daren't move him i knew him for dr stirk of the artillery he wore his regimentals i did not see his hat his head was bare when i saw him when i saw twas dr stirk i was frightened he had treated me mighty ill and i resented it which i did not conceal and i thought twould look very much against me if i were any way mixed up in this dreadful occurrence especially not knowing who did it and being alone with the body so soon after twas done i crossed the park wall therefore but by the time i came near barrack street i grew uneasy in my mind lest dr stirk should still have life in him and perish for want of help i went down to the riverside and washed my hands for there was blood upon em and while so employed by mischance i lost my hat in the water and could not recover it i stood for a while by the river bank it was a lonely place i was thinking of crossing there first i was so frightened i changed my mind however and went round by bloody bridge the further i went the more fearful i grew lest stirk should die for want of help that i might send him and although i thought him dead i got such a dread of this over me as i can't describe i saw two soldiers opposite the royal oak inn and i told them i overheard a fellow speak of an officer that lay wounded in the butcher's wood not far from the park wall and gave them half a crown to have search made which they promised and took the money i crossed bloody bridge and got into a coach and so to luke gambles i told him nothing of stirk i had talked foolishly to him and did not know what even he might think i told him all about m m's that is mary duncan's turning up and she went by that name in london and kept a lodging-house i took his advice on the matter and sailed next morning the man archie duncan had left edinburgh but i traced him to carlisle and thence to york where i found him he was in a very poor way and glad to hear the demi-rep was in dublin and making money when i came back i was in the hue and cry for the assault on stirk i took no precaution not knowing what had happened but twas night when we arrived duncan and i and we went straight to gambles and he concealed me i kept close within his house except on one night when i took coach i was under necessity as you shall hear to visit chapel is it i got out in the hollow of the road by the knockmaroon pond in the park an awful night it was the night of the snowstorm when the brig was wrecked off black rock you remember i wanted to get some papers necessary to my case against mary duncan i had the key of the glass door the inside fastening was broke and there was no trouble in getting in 
but the women had sat up beyond their hour and saw me i got the papers however and returned having warned them not to speak i ventured out of doors but once more and was took on a warrant for assaulting stirk twas the women talking as they did excited the officers suspicions i have lain in prison since the date of my committal and discharge are i suppose there and so ends this rough draft with the initials i think in his own hands c n at the foot at about half past four o'clock nutter came out to the mills in a coach he did not drive through chapel is it he was shy and wished to feel his way a little so he came home privately by the knockmaroon park gate poor little sally rose into a sort of heroine with a wild cry and oh charlie she threw her arms about his neck and the good little crater as magnolia was wont to call her had fainted nutter said nothing but carried her in his arms to the sofa and himself sobbed very violently for about a minute supporting her tenderly she came to herself very quickly and hugged her charlie with such a torrent of incoherent endearments welcomes and benedictions as i cannot at all undertake to describe nutter didn't speak his arms were about her and with wet eyes and biting his nether lip and smiling he looked into her poor little wild delighted face with an unspeakable world of emotion and affection beaming from the homely lines and knots of that old mahogany countenance and the maids smiling blessing curtsying and welcoming him home again added to the pleasant uproar which amazed even the tipsy coachman from the hall oh charlie i have you fast my darling oh but it's wonderful you yourself my charlie your own self never never oh never to part again and so on and so for a rapturous hour it seemed as if they had passed the dark valley and were immortal and no more pain sorrow or separation for them and perhaps these blessed illusions are permitted now and again to mortals like momentary gleams of paradise and distant views of the delectable mountains to cheer poor pilgrims with a foretaste of those meetings beyond the river where the separated and the beloved shall embrace it is not always that the person most interested in a rumour is first to hear it it was reported in chapel is it early that day that irons the clerk had made some marvellous discovery respecting lord de Noren, and the murder of which an english jury had found the nobleman guilty had people known that mervyn was the son of that dishonoured peer as in that curious little town they would no doubt long since have at least suspected had he called himself by his proper patronymic mordaunt he would not have wanted a visitor to enlighten him half an hour after the rumour had begun to proclaim itself in the streets and public haunts of the village no one however thought of the haughty and secluded young gentleman who lived so ascetic a life at the tiled house and hardly ever showed in the town except 
in church on sundays and who when he rode on his black hunter into dublin avoided the village and took the high road by Inchicore. when the report did reach him and he heard that Lowe, who knew all about it was at the phoenix where he was holding a conference with a gentleman from the crown office half wild with excitement he hurried thither there having declared himself to the magistrate and his companion in that little chamber where nutter was wont to transact his agency business and where poor sterk had told down his rent guinea by guinea with such a furious elation on the morning but one before he received his death-blow he heard with such feelings as may be imagined the magistrate read aloud not only the full and clear information of irons but the equally distinct deposition of dr sterk and was made aware of the complete identification of the respectable and vivacious paul dangerfield with the dead and damned charles archer on hearing all this the young man rode straight to belmont where he was closeted with the general for fully twenty minutes they parted in a very friendly way but he did not see the ladies the general however no sooner bid him farewell at the doorsteps than he made his way to the drawing-room and big with his amazing secret first in a very grave and almost agitated way told little tootie as he called his daughter to run away and leave him together with aunt rebecca which being done he anticipated that lady's imperious summons to explain himself by telling her in his blunt soldierly fashion the wondrous story aunt becky was utterly confounded she had seldom before in her life been so thoroughly taken in what a marvellous turn of fortune what a providential deliverance and vindication for that poor young lord de norin what an astounding exposure of that miscreant mr dangerfield what a blessed escape the child has had interposed the general with a rather testy burst of gratitude and how artfully she and my lord contrived to conceal their engagement pursued aunt rebecca covering her somewhat confused retreat but somehow aunt rebecca was by no means angry on the contrary any one who knew her well would have perceived that a great weight was taken off her mind the consequences of dangerfield's incarceration upon these awful charges were not confined altogether to the tiled house and the inhabitants of belmont no sooner was our friend clough well assured that dangerfield was in custody of the jailer and that his old theory of a certain double plot carried on by that intriguing personage with the object of possessing the hand and thousands of aunt rebecca was now and forever untenable then he wrote to london forthwith to countermand the pelican the answer which in those days was rather long about coming was not pleasant being simply a refusal to rescind the contract clough in a frenzy carried this piece of mercantile insolence off to his lawyer the stout captain was however undoubtedly liable and with a heavy heart he wrote to beg they would with all dispatch sell the bird in london on his account and charge him with the difference the scoundrels they'll buy him themselves at half price 
and charge me a percentage besides but what the plague better can i do in due course however came an answer informing captain clough that his letter had arrived too late as the bird pursuant to the tenor of his order had been shipped for him to dublin by the fair venus with a proper person in charge on the thursday morning previous good mrs mason his landlady had no idea what was causing the awful commotion in the captain's room the fitful and violent soliloquies the stamping of the captain up and down the floor and the contusions palpably suffered by her furniture the captain's temper was not very pleasant that evening and he was fidgety and feverish besides expecting every moment a note from town to apprise him of its arrival however he walked up to belmont a week or two after and had a very consolatory reception from aunt becky he talked upon his old themes and upon the subject of puttock was as usual very friendly and intercessorial in fact she showed at last signs of yielding well captain clough tell him if he cares to come he may come and be on the old friendly footing but be sure you tell him he owes it all to you and positively as she said so aunt rebecca looked down upon her fan and clough thought looked a little flushed and confused too whereat the gallant fellow was so elated that he told her all about the pelican discarding as unworthy of consideration under circumstances so eminently promising a little plan he had formed of keeping the bird privately in dublin and looking out for a buyer poor little puttock on the other hand had heard more than a week before this message of peace arrived the whole story of gertrude's engagement to lord de norne as we may now call mr mervyn with such sensations as may be conjectured his heart of course was torn but having sustained some score of similar injuries in that region upon other equally harrowing occasions he recovered upon this with all favourable symptoms and his wounds healed with the first intention he wore his chains very lightly indeed the iron did not enter into his soul and although of course he could never cease but with his life to dwell upon the image of his fleeting dream the beautiful nymph of belmont i have never heard that his waist grew at all slimmer or that his sleep or his appetite suffered during the period of his despair the good little fellow was very glad to hear from clough who patronized him most handsomely that aunt rebecca had consented to receive him once more into her good graces and the fact is puttock i think i may undertake to promise you'll never again be misunderstood in that quarter said clough with a mysterious sort of smile i am sure dear clough i'm grateful as i ought for your generous pleading on my poor behalf and i do prize the good will of that most excellent lady as highly as any and owe her beside a debt of gratitude for care and kindness such as many a mother would have failed to bestow mother indeed why puttock my boy you forget you're no chicken said clough a little high and to-morrow i will certainly pay her my respects 
said the lieutenant not answering clough's remark so gertrude chatsworth after her long agitation often despair was tranquil at last and blessed in the full assurance of the love which was henceforth to be her chief earthly happiness madam was very shy said aunt becky with a little shake of her head and a quizzical smile and holding up her folded fan between her finger and thumb in mimic menace as she glanced at gertrude why mr mordaunt on the very day the day we had the pleasant luncheon on the grass when as i thought she had given you your quietus twas quite the reverse and you had made a little betrothal and duped the old people so cleverly ever after you have forgiven me dear aunt said the young lady kissing her very affectionately but i will never quite forgive myself in a moment of great agitation i made a hasty promise of secrecy which from the moment was made was to me a never-resting disquietude misery and reproach if you my dearest aunt knew as he knows all the anxieties or rather the terrors i suffered during that agitating period of concealment indeed dear madam said mordaunt or as we now call him lord de norne coming to the rescue twas all my doing on me alone rests all the blame selfish it hardly was i could not risk the loss of my beloved and until my fortunes had improved to declare our situation would have been too surely to lose her henceforward i have done with mystery i will never have a secret from her nor she from me he took aunt becky's hand am i too forgiven he held it for a second and then kissed it aunt becky smiled with one of her pleasant little blushes and looked down on the carpet and was silent for a moment and then as they afterwards thought a little oddly she said that censor must be more severe than i who would say that concealment in matters of the heart is never justifiable and indeed my dear she added quite in a humble way i almost think you were right aunt becky's looks and spirits had both improved from the moment of this eclairissement a load was plainly removed from her mind let us hope that her comfort and elation were perfectly unselfish at all events her heart sang with a quiet joy and her good humour was unbounded so she stood up holding lord de norne's hand in hers and putting her white arm round her niece's neck she kissed her again and again very tenderly and she said how very happy gertrude you must be and then she went quickly from the room drying her eyes happy indeed she was and not least in the termination of that secrecy which was so full of self-reproach and sometimes of distrust from the evening of that dinner at the king's house when in an agony of jealousy she had almost disclosed to poor little lily the secret of their engagement down to the latest moment of its concealment her hours had been darkened by care and troubled with ceaseless agitations everything was now going prosperously for mervyn or let us call him henceforward lord de norne 
against the united evidence of stirk and irons two independent witnesses the crown were of opinion that no defence was maintainable by the wretch archer the two murders were unambiguously sworn to by both witnesses a correspondence afterwards read in the irish house of lords was carried on between the irish and the english law officers of the crown for the case for many reasons was admitted to be momentous as to which crime he should be tried first for the murder of stirk or that of beauclerk the latter was in this respect the most momentous that the cancelling of the forfeiture which had ruined the de Noren family depended upon it what are you not forgetting sir said mr attorney in consultation that there's the finding of phalo de say against him by the coroner's jury no sir answered the crown solicitor well pleased to set mr attorney right the jury being sworn found only that he came by his death but whether by gout in his stomach or by other disease or by poison they had no certain knowledge there was therefore no such coroner's verdict and no forfeiture therefore and i'm glad to hear it with all my heart i've seen the young gentleman and a very pretty young nobleman he is said mr attorney perhaps he would not have cared if this expression of his good will had got round to my lord the result was however that their prisoner was to be first tried in ireland for the murder of dr barnabas sturk a few pieces of evidence slight but sinister also turned up captain clough was quite clear he had seen an instrument in the prisoner's hand on the night of the murder as he looked into the little bedchamber of the brass castle so unexpectedly when he put down the towel he raised it from the toilet where it lay it resembled the butt of a whip was an inch or so longer than a drumstick and six or seven inches of the thick end stood out in a series of circular bands or rings he washed the thick end of it in the basin it seemed to have a spring in it and clough thought it was a sort of loaded baton in those days robbery and assault were as common as they are like to become again and there was nothing remarkable in the possession of such defensive weapons dangerfield had only run it once or twice hastily through the water and rolled it in a red handkerchief and threw it into his drawer which he locked when clough was shown the whip which bore a rude resemblance to this instrument and which Lowe had assumed to be all that Clough had really seen, the gallant captain peremptorily pooh-poohed it. "'Twas no such thing. The whip-handle was light in comparison, and it was too long to fit in the drawer. Now the awful fractures, which had almost severed Stirk's skull, corresponded exactly with the wounds which such an instrument would inflict and a tubular piece of broken iron about two inches long exactly corresponding with the shape of the loading described by clough was actually discovered in the sewer of the brass castle it had been in the fire and the wood or whalebone was burnt completely away it was conjectured that dangerfield had believed it to be lead 
and having burnt the handle had broken the metal which he could not melt and made away with it in the best way he could so preparations were pushed forward and stirk's dying declaration sworn to late in the evening before his dissolution in a full consciousness of his approaching death was of course relied on and a very symmetrical and logical bill lay neatly penned in the crown office awaiting the next commission for the county end of chapter ninety six recording by john brandon